the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Rescuers, the show about people who change and save lives. Now, here's your host, Art Brooks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Rescuers Radio Show at faithtalk1360.com, KPXQ, Faith Talk 1360, and, uh, and you can watch pod, or listen to podcasts there and all of those kinds of good things. My guest for this program is, uh, it, it's a great uh, honor for me to have a, a friend, brother in Christ, and a former pastor of mine, Julius Keller, is here. Hi, Julius. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm so glad you want you could do this. Um, you know, I always like starting off the program with uh, people telling about how they got here to where you are right now, and um, we can't go over the whole thing because we'd be here two days. But I'd like to to hear your answer to that question in about three, four minutes or so. Well, thank you, Arden. It's a pleasure for me and a privilege for me to be here. And I'm so excited for your program. And it's uh, very humbling to be one of your guests today. Um, I was very blessed to have been born into a Christian family. And for generation after generation after generation, we only have two core values. One and first and foremost is our faith. Uh, that is the That's what you're taught from birth. Secondly, is higher education. And so um, that set me upon a pathway that has brought me to where I am today. And I'm so grateful for a mother who modeled the attributes of Jesus Christ and a grandmother who was the greatest human being uh, that mirrored Jesus Christ that I ever saw in my life. Um, so my mother on Wednesday, August uh, 28th, 1963, called me in from Cincinnati where I was growing up. And it was a hot, sweltering day. And she said, I want you to watch this with me. I said, Mom, I don't want to watch whatever you're watching. I want to go outside and play ball. She said, you will sit down here right now and watch this with me. This is history. And she started crying. Well, my mother's my best friend in the whole world. And to see her crying, I thought, oh, my goodness, I'll watch this with you. Yeah. And it was the March on Washington. Nice. And little did I know at that particular moment of watching that, that God was foreshadowing for me what my life would be. Yeah. and how it would unfold. Yes. Afterwards, I went back out and played ball because, in my mind, I was going to be a professional athlete. And so I played <laughs> ball every day. Baseball, basketball, and football yep. were my strengths. However, by the time I had attended an all-black elementary school, growing up in an all-black neighborhood where we only had three Caucasians and they were brothers, I then went to the top high school in Cincinnati, Ohio, which was a college prep high school that had 3,500 students Wow. 97% were Caucasian. 
and art, I thought I had been dropped into a different planet in the universe because I had never seen that many Caucasians together anywhere ever in my life. My gosh. By the time I made that assimilation into white America, I was now a sophomore, and I had never really heard the word Africa mentioned in any meaningful way. And so during the civil rights movement, I was involved at the high school level. And I led the movement at the high school level for the public high schools in Cincinnati. And what we wanted was African history taught as part of our core curriculum, or at least offered. Absolutely. And because my high school was the top high school in Cincinnati, this was very significant. And so I led the movement. We demonstrated. We sat in. The principal told us, warned us every half hour that we were going to be arrested and we would be kicked out of school. Well, I knew that was a big thing. And everybody that came in that I extended the invitation to to come and join us, many of the African-American students did. Well, uh, sure enough, we got suspended, and they called my parents, and it was right at dinner, the dinner hour. And my sister, who was a year behind me, the principal informed my parents that she had been suspended from school for two weeks because she had sat in and demonstrated during the day. Oh, my. And before I could get my exit strategy together— Um, the phone rang again, and he said, oh, by the way, your son has been suspended too. And before I could say anything, my sister said, Mom, he led the movement. It's all his fault. (laughs) He told everybody that came in there to sit down that day. And my mother went absolutely ballistic because my mom was one of the top educators in the elementary school system in Cincinnati and an icon in the community. And she was just beside herself. And she wanted to know, why didn't I ask her whether or not I should be doing that? I said, Mom, you would have said, no, you're not going to do that. She said, precisely. I said, that's why I didn't ask you. (laughs) And I learned at a very young age that there are consequences for your acts. To my parents' credit and other parents, they reduced the suspension from uh, two weeks to one week. However, the list of chores that we had to do was the worst week of my life. (laughs) living at home. Uh, And my mother was trying to impress upon us there are consequences for your acts. It wasn't until two years later that, to my utter amazement, we had African history taught when I was a senior. And during the summer between my junior and senior year, the superintendent of the public schools asked my mom to write the first core curriculum for African history at the elementary school level. Wonderful. And if you had told me then in 1967 or so that you fast forward in 2013 that I would be preaching at the oldest Methodist church in the entire country of South Africa on Mother's Day, I could have never conceived that. Right. So God always has a plan for us. God is always calling us into action. But the critical core uh, ingredient that we need, other than the attributes of Jesus Christ, is to understand what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And that if you're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, that cost is your life. Your life yeah. And so when you understand that, then it sets you on a pathway. And for me, God identified early on that I wasn't going to be a professional <laughs> athlete, but I didn't realize that until I was at my first day in college. And I said to the Lord out loud, I'm not making this up, I said, well, Lord, I guess I'm not going to be a professional athlete. Now what? <laughs> and it was like the Lord said to me, oh, finally, finally you've w- awakened. All right, let's get busy. And the Lord has led me on a pathway to be that bridge, especially between the racial divide that I had started 
at a young age in high school. So you started off on the path with the Lord, and then you went to law school. Yes. <laughs> yes, because— You had quite a career in, uh, in, uh, uh, as, a, as a, uh, an attorney dealing with uh, housing issues. Right, and the reason for that pathway was my grandfather graduated from Northwestern's law school in 1915, the only African-American in his class. And so he and other lawyers in Indiana used their law degree to eliminate the lynchings that were occurring all, almost monthly in the 1920s in Marion, Indiana, in the state of Indiana. And, and Professor James Madison, who was the chair of the University of Indiana's uh, history class or history uh, department, wrote a book, and he chronicled, chronicled this. And in it were a lot of the legal work of my grandfather. So my dad was in Columbia's law school when the war broke out, and then he ended up uh, serving in the war for four years, and decorated veteran with a bronze medal. When he came back, he didn't have money to go back to New York, so he ended up at the Lincoln College of Law, which at that time was in St. Louis. And there he met my mom, who was teaching in St. Louis. And then he wanted to move to Indiana, so we ended up in a little town in Richmond, Indiana. And during segregation, my dad and his partner were the top lawyers in the town, and they had 70% of their clientele were Caucasian. And my dad was very light-complected, so he was a member of the American Bar Association, and he was the heir president heir apparent to the presidency of the National Bar Association. And he was a consultant on the desegregation cases with Thurgood Marshall, and he was a member of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So my my dad and my grandfather, uh, they really uh, started me on a pathway of civil rights. And so I didn't never want to live my life. uh, uh, I wanted to live my life without living theirs. But the influence of Dr. King going back to to the March on Washington was significant because when Dr. King was murdered on April 4th of 1968, President Johnson couldn't get the Fair Housing Act passed because the senators in the South were filibustering. So that was the carrot that that President Johnson used for black America to stop tearing up all of the major cities in our nation. And, And so the passage of the Fair Housing Act, little what I have ever dreamt, would lead to the career you're talking about which began in, on the Fair Housing Act as its focus because when Dr. King brought the movement from the South to Chicago, that's when he realized, oh, my goodness, there's so many segregated housing patterns that if people can't live where their jobs are, they're never going to be able to get a job in the suburbs. Yeah. And so he changed the focus of the movement from economics to housing. And there, this is a tremendous leadership because the most powerful Democrat – in the United States of America during that time period was Richard J. Daley, the mayor of Chicago. Chicago. And so he put together a cross-section of all the leadership of Chicago with Dr. King there, and they created the first fair housing organization called the Leadership uh, uh, Opportunities for Open Communities Housing uh, Agency, and that was the first housing organization in the country. And for three years, I was the assistant general counsel to that organization. And so we led the way in Chicago with our legal, with our law degree, to open up communities that heretofore were segregated. And it changed the entire housing patterns of Chicago. So somewhere after that, you got the calling to go back to pastoring. Yes. Again, it comes from a calling from God. 
And when I graduated from law school in 1977, I'm dating myself now, I said to all of my classmates as I, as I threw my arms up in the air and I said, I'm never going to school again. This is great. I was so excited and so happy. 25 years later, there I am, knowing that the call is into ministry. I had grown up in the United Methodist Church. I knew that to be an elder in the United Methodist Church, you had to have a master's in divinity. So I gave up everything and uh, went to seminary. And then you came to Arizona somehow. The whole time I was in <laughs> seminary, I was pastoring the church before I started seminary. Yeah. Because I said to the Lord, I, I have $29,000 of liabilities. How am I going to do this? Next thing you know, I had a scholarship to seminary for four, for $15,000. And the district superintendents broke every protocol in our book of discipline. And they asked me would I start pastoring the church at 14000 I retired from the government on a Friday my birthday was the next day, and I was in the pulpit at Lockbourne United Methodist Church on that Sunday. And that's how I started my wow. ministerial career in Ohio. So uh, I want to go deep into some of your experiences. We're, we're 13 and a half minutes to go. We're, we've already burned half the program. <laughs> I knew that would happen, Julius. But no, uh, our audience is extremely interested in your background, how you got here, and uh, you talk about uh, what was going on in the 60s and 70s, blowing up n- neighborhoods and towns. Oh, yeah. Aren't we seeing that again? And, yeah. and, and so let, let's talk a little bit about systemic racism mm-hmm. and what you're seeing and what's your take on it today, today. It's very disheartening where we are today. I never thought back then that we would be at this stage in our nation's history. And one of the big differences is technology. Yeah. So people treat the Internet as though... It's the gospel, and you and I both know anybody can put anything and everything on the Internet. There's no filter. Um, I think that we don't have the same leadership. There's a lack of leadership across the board. We had Dr. King. uh, Black America had Dr. King, and there were a lot of people that supported Dr. King, and that coalition grew and grew uh, as things were seen on television when there were only three stations. And when we had a great cross-section and then— President Kennedy getting involved, it changed the course of America forever. Yes. And now everybody's got a camera in their hand. Right. Not only that, but there's such a divide in our nation. It's so polarizing that we've lost sight, especially in the faith community, of the life of Christ. The life of Christ is designed to reconcile people to each other and to God. And so we don't have an approach that tries to find what do we have in common? And how can we work together for the good of all of America? And when we lack that and we only have polarizing views, we are teetering on the brink of anarchy and our democracy is at stake here. Those of you who study history, there was a point in time where Rome was the greatest nation on the face of the earth. I would respectfully submit to your listeners that if the Vatican were not in Rome, no one would ever talk about Rome. We are so gotten so complacent in the United States and so used to the divide that we are acting like this can go on and we'll we'll be okay. Yeah. I respectfully submit that we aren't okay. Yeah. And the divide is pronouncing all of the differences that divide us when nobody's talking about how can we come together. Right. Right. And 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 missing out the the, the vocabulary of love and everything that Jesus is about. So, um, And then let me interrupt just for a second. Yeah. I'm glad you said that 
because one of my colleagues, Rudy Rasmus, is, is in Houston at St. John's United Methodist Church, and he wrote a book called Love, Love, Period. And so his whole culture of his church is unconditional love. And he posed these questions years ago. What would happen if we truly loved those who are different from us in race, in background, in abilities, in gender, in economic status, in identity, or physical condition? How would our communities change if we stopped being afraid of those who don't fit our definition of lovable? How would our hearts find greater joy if we acknowledged the risk of loving without conditions and did it anyway? Yeah. That goes to the heart of the life of Christ. That's what it is. And, and the faith community cannot abdicate their role in this process of reconciliation and healing. And we have to have a louder voice and a louder uh, involvement, especially in our United Methodist denomination, if we're going to impact what should be an outcome that reflects the attributes of Christ. So you mentioned uh, lack of leadership. So is it is it is it too? It's probably too easy just to say that we need more leaders on on all the all the sides, and because uh, we do, and and somehow bring all of that together. I, I saw a. Um, an interview with Herschel Walker uh, just the other day. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows the name, uh, famous running back from University of Georgia. And um, he's very involved now. And he's, he stepped up and he said, look, either side, we have no leadership. So we need to bring all the leaders that we know about in these factions, come back to Washington, lock ourselves down for a few days, and I'm all in. If you want me to lead this thing, I will. But um, we need to come to an end. We need to get this figured out, and we need to do it in a hurry because the destructive part of this, not only the physical destruction part, but the mental and the um, the ethnic side of it is just getting ripped apart, right? Yes, and this has long-term effects. Yeah. That's, that's why without the spiritual component, all of – what Herschel said really isn't going to be possible without the spiritual component. Yes. We, we, I, I would elevate it to a level at the spiritual level to say we need to find out what is God's agenda? What are the godly goals? And how can God use us to achieve that outcome determinative by God? Yeah. And so for me, my identity has always been found in Jeremiah 29, 11 through oh, 13. I yeah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You will come to me, call to me, and pray to me, and I will listen. But you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. God had a plan for the people of Judah. He hadn't abandoned them. And God's always calling us who have a a faith foundation to be involved. And you've heard me say this, to be participatory in the glory of the kingdom of God. That's an active, engaged, ongoing relationship, not just with God, but with each other, that God uses us to be impactful, to bring about the outcome that God desires. So all of the layers of what we're seeing every day, all of the layers uh, from from Black Lives Matter to uh, anarchists, Antifa, or to uh, good cop, bad cop, there's so many layers that we're, we're having to deal with and that we're being shown every single day new, new parts of those components. And what's it going to take for somebody to rise above 
that and say, we need to fix this. Well, we certainly can't wait around for someone to come forward. We have to ask and ourselves. I'm not necessarily talking politically. I'm talking right. I being, right. uh, you know. We, we have to ask ourselves, Lord, what is it you would want me to do yeah. to part- be participatory? Right. Those were the questions God was posing to me when I was 15 or 16. First with each one of us. Right. And each one of us has gifts and talents that can be used for good or evil. It's our choice. <laughs> and, and my hope and my belief is that yeah. there'll be enough who want to choose to use their talents for good and e- for good rather than versus evil. And if we're able to do that, we'll make a profound difference because that's what God desires. I chuckle because uh, at the end of last year, uh, my wife and I were praying and I said, uh, it's, it's time for me to get back on the air. And I tried this about 12 years ago, but it wasn't going to fit with my work at that time. Matter of fact, it would have alienated my work mm-hmm. uh, with the Broadcast Association. So uh, I, I'm a free agent. I want to get back in. So I visited with uh, general manager of the station here at Salem, mm-hmm. the he- head of the Faith Talk uh, programming. And um, pretty soon, I, I uh, through prayer, I had a name for it. It's going to be called Rescuers. Right. And... <laughs> Little did I know at the time, I th- I'm thinking, ah, police, fire, EMTs, all the first-line people that do stuff every day, change and save lives, uh, you know, recovery centers. And God said, Mm-mm, look what's coming. The name is COVID, and that changed everything. It changed. Uh, it didn't change how this program was being uh, sought out, but it has uh, really made it so much more dynamic I think than what it probably would have been because it's 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 under Christ's order now. <laughs> oh yeah, but when I when I look at your life and where you are now, uh, you thought that you were in retirement. You weren't. You were being repositioned by God. <laughs> That's right. One of your your uh, guests that had a great response was Lisa, the nurse. Yes. Lisa was teaching swimming. Yeah. For for twenty years, she didn't want to be like her mom. She was teaching top levels, right? Uh, and, Olympic type. But, but she was avoiding being like her mom, who was an <laughs> ICU nurse. Yeah. But when the call came and she responded, look at the impact she's having now. Yeah. So when, when God calls you into action, it's a, it's a divine plan yeah. and purpose. That wasn't what Lisa wanted to do when she was younger. And you never thought you'd be sitting here no. when you retire. And, and, and so this is, an, this is being orchestrated by God. And when, yeah. when, when we really wake up and realize that, we'll see a spirit, spiritual reawakening just like they saw in Judah when God repositioned them. And affirmed them and told them, I haven't abandoned you, but here's what you got to call. Here's what you got to do to get back in the game. And you will always be at the center because God uses us to make a difference in the glory of his kingdom. And and when we realize that, we'll stop having these polarizing labels and we'll realize uh, that we're all in this together. And and here's another example I give to people and, and to your listeners. Any of you who have been in international travel you certainly realize that we are not viewed as black or white Americans by people outside of the borders of the United States of America. We are all viewed as Americans. Americans. And those who set out to do evil, they're not distinguishing between the the categories that we are dealing with inside of our country. They look at us as Americans. And so why is it that everybody outside of our borders views us (laughs) like that, but then we don't view each other like that? Oh, what a, what a question and observation, because it's true. 
and and uh, and I don't know where people think that are doing the dastardly deeds where they think we're all going to go because we're all here. Right. We're, we're here. We have to live here. Uh, we we have to c- get along, and um, we're inside a couple of minutes now. But I I want I always like asking my guests at the end of the show. Um, you know, COVID has cha- changed everything upside down. Uh, in addition to all of the systemic racist issues, the political issues, whatever's going on, COVID has been a game changer. And uh, there's a lot of stories being developed. What do you think your story will be at the end of COVID? Well, I hope it'll be what it was before then. And that is what Jesus, the last thing he said to his disciples was what? People say, oh, uh, he was on the cross, and, and Pastor, he said that uh, it is finished. Oh, no, no. He said, forgive them for him. I said, no, you got to read on. He comes back in his resurrected state, and he says to them, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem where they are, in Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. That's my mandate always, is that I will bear testimony to Christ no matter where I am, whether I'm in Arizona or Ohio or any other part of the country or the nation or the world that I must use my life to bear testimony to Christ. Cool. Julius, it's been so good to to get back in touch with you today and have you on the Rescuers program. Rescuers is, uh, you can listen to it in podcast form at at faithtalk1360.com or listen to it every Thursday at 530 live on KPXQ Faith Talk 1360. Rescuers, Thursdays at 5.30 Arizona time on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ AM.